Well, hello. I'm Carla Hayden from the Pratt Library, and I see some familiar faces. And welcome to all of you to a very special edition of our Writers Live series. And I'm very pleased to also be able to say that it's very warm. And it was sunny, and this is a wonderful day in Baltimore for a lot of reasons. And so please bear with us. This building will be renovated. The renovation will start soon. You may have read about it. In part, will be the heating cooling system. So keep that in mind um, as we go. But we're delighted to welcome a person who knows this library in particular very well. Um, and actually just said that it was actually close to his heart, and I'm talking about, of course, Terry Teachout, the drama critic of the Wall Street Journal, critic at large of commentary, the author of Sightings, a bi-weekly column for the Friday Journal, and playwright. His first play, Satchmo at the Waldorf, um, opened um, in... 2012, and I just asked him, I said, what does it feel like being a critic, having your work reviewed? Well, if you haven't read it, the New York Times gave it a wonderful review. Things are looking good, and we are delighted. He was born in Cape Dorado, Missouri. I'm not going to say the year. Um, But also, you may not know that he is a musician, and he worked as a jazz bassist in Kansas City, perfect place, and he now lives in New York and Connecticut with his wife, Hillary. He's the author of a book that really um, let him delve into the archives here, The Skeptic, A Life of uh, Joe Mankin, and most recently, Pops, A Life of Louis Armstrong, and now his groundbreaking um, biography of... Duke Ellington, the Duke, a man of mystery, uh, but the covers have been drawn back by Mr. Teachout. So come on up, Terry, and give him a good welcome back to Baltimore. I'm good. The covers, indeed, including the bed covers, but we'll talk about that in a few minutes. You know, it it is, it's an unusual pleasure for me to be back at the Pratt. As I was talking to Carla, I was thinking... When did I first come here? Uh, and I realized the Mencken book came out in 2001, and I spent 10 years working on it. So uh, you do the math, but uh, uh, I spent many an hour in what the old Mencken room, uh, and uh, many an hour. I had a stax pass, I was telling Carla. I used to, like, like a vampire, I used to haunt the underground stacks. So I know this library well, and I love it, and it's... Such a pleasure for me to be here, maybe more than you can easily imagine, because a biographer, as I know very well, spends the better part of his life sitting all alone in a room, pecking away at a keyboard for years on end. So it really is always a treat for people like me to get up in front of a live audience and share some of the fruits of our protracted labors. Rarely is the biographer's task more challenging or more exciting than when he spends those long, long years telling the story of a great man who was determined to keep his story from being told. Duke Ellington may have lived his life in public, but he did everything in his power to keep it private. 
He talked not to explain himself, but to conceal himself, and he almost never told anyone, even those who thought themselves to be his friends, what he really thought about anything. Yet he talked so fluently and impressively that nearly everyone believed him, except for the ones who had reason to know better. He made up stories about his life in music out of whole cloth, especially when it came to the subject of his love life. Throughout his life, Duke Ellington was catnip to women, and he rarely said no when they invited him into their beds. But throughout his lifetime, he lied to reporters with a perfectly straight face about his romantic relationships, and even those who knew the real story chose not to print it. Outside this room are a few stacks of my book, which you're, of course, invited to purchase and have me sign, but you'll notice on the front cover, the dust jacket, a photograph of Ellington that shows a crescent-shaped scar on his left cheek, very rarely seen in photographs. Reporters never talked about it, and they never said that he got it when his wife attacked him with a razor after finding out that he was sleeping with another woman. Nor did the reporters have much to say about the fact, well known to his colleagues, but completely unknown to the public at large, that many of Duke Ellington's best-known songs were spun out of melodic fragments that he lifted from the playing of the musicians in his band. Now, why do these things matter? Why should we care about them? Because Duke Ellington was the most important jazz composer of the 20th century and one of the greatest composers in any genre of music. Now, there have been other important jazz composers, but Ellington was the first one of indisputable, international, culture-changing significance. Not only was he a major composer of purely instrumental music, but he also wrote some of the 20th century's most successful popular songs, including Mood Indigo and Sophisticated Lady, many of which continue to this day to be performed and recorded. No jazz musician has left a deeper mark on world culture, and that is the reason why Ellington deserves to have his story told in full. It is the job of a biographer to tell the truth about his subject, and that job becomes all the more important when his subject is, like Duke Ellington, a very great man. Now, Duke, my Ellington biography, is not a sensationalistic expose. But it is, as far as I could make it, an honest book, honest in every way about matters that Ellington himself never cared to discuss and never wanted anybody else to discuss. And I believe deeply that such unswerving honesty is the highest possible tribute that can be paid to Duke Ellington's greatness. The epigraph of Duke is something that was said by Somerset Maugham, a famous writer who was also strongly inclined to keep his private life private. Mom said, There is one very good thing to be said of posterity, and this is that it turns a blind eye on the defects of greatness. Well, Duke Ellington was a great man, and 
a man full of flaws. It is impossible to understand how he became what he became without understanding those flaws. I believe that my long experience as a biographer equipped me to peel away the endless layers of deception and evasion with which Ellington covered up his secrets. At the same time, my parallel life as a working musician, which Carla referred to, I think has also equipped me to explain some of the secrets of the endlessly beautiful music that is, even now, the one and only reason why we still care about Duke Ellington today. Nowadays, of course, most folks know me as a drama critic, and now as a playwright. But I am also a trained musician with extensive performing experience. I was a professional jazz musician, a bass player, before becoming a full-time writer. That experience has helped me to understand Ellington's music and the world in which he lived and worked from the inside out. In Duke, I've tried to translate this specialist's knowledge into plain English and weave it into the incredible story of Ellington's life. If you don't understand the one, you won't understand the other. What makes Duke Ellington's music sound so powerfully, unmistakably individual? To begin with, he was the very first jazz composer to write music that used what was then the still new medium of the big band with the same imagination for color that was brought by the great classical composers to their symphonic works. Andre Previn was one of his best-known, best-informed admirers, and Previn said this, You know, Stan Kenton can stand in front of a thousand fiddles and a thousand brass and make a dramatic gesture, and every studio arranger can nod his head and say, oh yeah, that's done like this. But Duke merely lifts his finger, three horns make a sound, and I don't know what it is. Nor were Ellington's innovations limited to the field of orchestration. What set him apart was not his virtuoso command of instrumental color, but how he used it. Mere arrangers took pop songs and dressed them up in new colors and harmonies. But Ellington, although he did record his share of engagingly catchy song hits, was better known and more widely esteemed for the pieces in which he used the language of jazz to say things that it had never said before. Andre Previn compared him to Stravinsky and Prokofiev. Percy Granger compared him to Bach and Delius. Ralph Ellison compared him to Ernest Hemingway. Within the tight confines of a single 78 record side, he spun tone parallels, a phrase that he coined to every imaginable human emotion. He and the 900 musicians who passed through his band over the years sang of joy and loneliness, passion and despair, faith and hope. Like Ravel and Renoir before him, Duke Ellington was an impressionist, an artist who dealt not in ideas but in images, and the life that he portrayed in sound 
clearly related, though it was, to the world around him, was his inner life. As Paul Cezanne put it, his goal as a painter was not to paint the subject, but to realize sensations. He looked, listened, and felt, and so did Duke, and then he transformed his feelings into music. Right from the start, his music had a pictorial quality that had very little resemblance to the extroverted dance tunes that most other jazz men were playing in the Roaring Twenties. His 1,700-odd compositions included musical portraits of pretty women, tap-dancing comedians, express trains, Shakespearean characters, and the unsung heroes of his long-despised race, and he made it sound as if writing them were easy. He said, I just watch people and observe life, and then I write about them. Of course, it wasn't that easy or that simple. Ellington's miraculously concise musical cameos had an architectural unity that is almost unique among early jazz compositions. He was, as I say in my book, a disciplined lyric miniaturist. He could express the grandest of of emotions on the smallest of scales, and he knew the secret of how to fuse written ensembles and improvised solos into fully integrated musical structures. Yet he tossed his pieces off with seeming casualness. Sometimes he worked on his musicians in the same kind of way that a choreographer makes a ballet on his dancers. He would pass out or dictate scraps of music and then shape and reshape them on the spot into a piece that only later would be reduced to written form. Only a genius could have worked in so haphazard a way, but Duke Ellington filled the bill. Now, genius is a big word. I think the right word. But you should never toss around a word like that unless you are ready to put it to the test. Now, the way to do so, needless to say, is to listen to Duke Ellington's music, the public Ellington, if you like. Naturally, I have plenty to say about the public Ellington in my book. But in Duke, I also take you backstage to meet the private Ellington. Like Louis Armstrong, the subject of my last book, Duke Ellington left behind a vast body of private papers, manuscripts, and unpublished interviews, not to mention the voluminous record of his life as a public figure. He spent much of that life talking into microphones. And though it wasn't his custom to tell the unvarnished truth to anybody, he never in his life gave an interview in which he didn't have something interesting to say. So I had, in short, a lot of material to work with, and I did my best to weave it into a piece of biographical storytelling that has the narrative force and sweep of a novel, but one that also, I hope, shines the brightest possible light on Duke Ellington's artistic achievements. So I would like, if I may, to read you part of the prologue of Duke. It's a section in which I try to convey some sense of what he was like as a man and why it matters. So now, here is an excerpt from Duke, A Life of Duke Ellington.
He was the most chronic of procrastinators, a man who never did today what he could put off until next month or next year. He left letters unanswered, contracts unsigned, watches unworn, and longtime companions unwed. And the only thing harder than getting him out of bed in the afternoon was getting him to finish writing a new piece of music in time for the premiere. He liked to say, I don't need time. What I need is a deadline. Nothing but an immovable deadline could spur Duke Ellington to decisive action. Though once he set to work in earnest, it was with a speed and self-assurance that amazed all who beheld it. At the end of his life, he left behind some 1,700-odd compositions, a number that is hard to square with the memories of his collaborators, who rarely failed at one time or another to be frustrated by his procrastinating ways. That was fine with him. He knew what he needed in order to create, and as far as he was concerned, nothing and no one else mattered. He told Louis Armstrong, As long as something is unfinished, there's always that little feeling of insecurity. And a feeling of insecurity is absolutely necessary, unless you're so rich that it doesn't matter. Now, few of his pronouncements can be taken at face value, because he was never in the habit of telling anyone, even those who supposed themselves to be his friends, what he really thought. But this one has the ring of truth. He wants life and music to be in a state of becoming, said the trumpeter Clark Terry, one of the many stars of the band that Ellington led from 1924 until his death a half century later. He doesn't even like to write definitive endings to a piece. Though he carried himself like a prince of the realm, he was the son of a butler and the grandson of a slave. Washington, D.C., where Edward Kennedy Ellington was born in 1899, was one of America's most segregated cities, but it also had a black middle class that was proud and self-aware. Ellington's parents belonged to it, and their only son, a high school dropout whose regal demeanor belied his poor grades and seeming lack of interest in music, went out of his way to acquire its manners. For all his polish, it was his artistry, not his personality, that was the source of his enduring appeal. But it was the personality that made white people, who might not otherwise have done so, give him a second glance, and in time it opened doors of opportunity through which few other blacks had been allowed to pass. Ellington's surface qualities were exploited to the hilt by Irving Mills, his white manager. Mills told an interviewer, we wanted Duke to be recognized as someone more important. By this he meant that the best way to position his client in a market full of talented black band leaders was to present him to the world as a different kind of black man, fine-spoken and expensively tailored, 
a fellow whom broad-minded white folks could imagine introducing to their friends, even if they might not care to bring him home to meet their wives. Ellington himself was happy to play the game because he saw his public image as a contribution to the welfare of his people. He said, Every time you walk out on the street and you're exposed to a white citizen, you know, you are acting in behalf of the race. That was why he never let his guard down, because he knew that there would always be somebody looking. Over time, Irving Mills's strategy paid off between either man's wildest dreams. Long before Ellington died in 1974, he had become, after Louis Armstrong, jazz's biggest celebrity, as well as the first jazz musician to be widely hailed as an artist of consequence, and not just by his fellow jazz men, but also by such distinguished classical musicians as Aaron Copland and Percy Granger. Their praise gave his work a cultural legitimacy at which no posterity-conscious black artist would have been inclined to turn up his nose. Yet Ellington was also, like Armstrong, a popular entertainer whose music was meant to please a mass audience. Long before the swing era, his band was seen in films and heard on network radio. And long after most of the other band leaders who followed him into the limelight faded into obscurity, Ellington continued to perform on network TV and girdle the globe, playing the hits that had made him famous, if never rich. 12,000 people came to his funeral at the Cathedral Church of St. John the Divine in New York City, his adopted hometown and the place that he loved best. By then, his baggy eyes and sardonic flattery were almost as familiar to the mourners as his music. Underneath his soigné exterior, Ellington was a self-centered hedonist who lived a nomadic existence in which everything was subordinated to his art and, insofar as possible, to his pleasure. He sought to exert the maximum possible amount of control over everyone in his life by stealth. He once told Mercer Ellington, his son, What you need to do is wake up after 2 o'clock, make phone calls, but don't move an inch. Just lie flat on your back and phone and tell everybody everything that has to be done and lay out all your plans without going out anywhere. When you come downstairs, you'll have prepared your day and you'll be the greatest. After he died, Mercer found a handwritten note among his father's papers in which Ellington summed himself up in three sentences. No problem. I'm easy to please. I just want to have everybody in the palm of my hand. His selfishness was unswerving, though it did not exclude benevolence, if only on his own terms. Rex Stewart, a longtime member of his band, said, Ellington is the most complex and paradoxical individual that I've ever known. A combination of Sir Galahad, Scrooge, Don Quixote, and God knows what other saints and sinners were apt to pop out of his ever-changing personality. He was at once deeply, if superstitiously, religious, and a tireless philanderer who, in the words of an admiring friend, 
had the sexual appetite of a romping, stomping alley cat. He was careful to keep that out of the papers, just as he tried never to show his vulnerability to anyone who might take advantage of it. But vulnerable he was, and would always be. While he believed that his music was, (coughs) to use the phrase with which he described his favorite artists, beyond category, (coughs) he was painfully conscious of the racial slights that beset him throughout his life, even after he became a star. He was enraged when he learned that he had been passed over for a Pulitzer Prize in 1965. Nat Hentoff recalled, That night I saw him. He was furious. He was so angry. He said, that's another example of what it's like to be black. They think European music, classical music, is the only criterion for art. It says much about Ellington that though he knew better than to take to heart the opinion of a board of musically illiterate newspaper men, he still longed for a Pulitzer Prize the ultimate token of establishment approval, and was devastated when he failed to get it. None of it showed. The rage, the humiliation, the unbridled sensuality, all were kept far from prying eyes. His fans saw only what he wished them to see, and nothing more. So did his colleagues. Miles Davis said, I think all the musicians should get together one certain day and get down on their knees and thank Duke. Yet to Ellington's own musicians, he was a riddle without an answer, an unknowable man who hid behind a high wall of ornate utterances and flowery compliments that grew higher as he grew older. And while most of his sidemen admired his artistry without reservation, Many of them also believed him to be unscrupulous and manipulative. On occasion, one of them would chafe at his high-handedness and give notice. Even Johnny Hodges and Billy Strayhorn, the band's two seemingly indispensable members, lost patience with him in the 50s and chose to wander for a time in the wilderness. But those wanderers, including Hodges and Strayhorn, usually came back to the fold sooner or later because they knew that the sensitive settings that he created for his players made them sound better than they could ever have dreamed of sounding on their own. They were stuck with him and he with them, no matter how badly they behaved, and a few of them behaved badly enough to land in jail. In 1944, a journalist dubbed Ellington the Hot Bach, a comparison that is likely to have vexed him. Just a decade earlier, he had said that you can't stay in the European conservatory and play the Negro music. He insisted that his own achievement was unique unto itself, so much so that he refused to call his music jazz. He said, I don't write jazz. I write Negro folk music. Well, he was wrong. His music is one of the cornerstones of jazz. But he was right about the singularity of that music, just as he himself was as singular as a human being can be, an improbably gaudy bird of paradise who spoke at least one undeniable truth 
in the self-interview that ends his biography. Question. Can you keep from writing music? Do you write in spite of yourself? Answer. I don't know how strong the chains, cells, and bars are. I've never tried to escape. So that's how my book starts. And now, if you don't mind, just a few words of epilogue. I spent five years working on Duke, about the same amount of time that I spent writing my last book, Pops, A Life of Louis Armstrong. Over the past few months, a lot of people have been asking me an interesting question. Of the two men, which one do you like more? Now, on one level, the answer, I think, is obvious. Satchmo was clearly the more likable man, in part because his personality was so completely open and unguarded. But Ellington was more intriguing for the opposite reason. He only showed you what he wanted you to see and nothing more. So I guess I'd have to say that I would have preferred to be Armstrong's friend, though I think it would have been great fun to hang out with Duke on occasion. I'm not sure I would have wanted to work for him, though, and I'm well aware, as I said a moment ago, that a lot of the men who worked for Ellington over the years had sharply mixed feelings about him. Yet they kept on playing for him, in some cases, for most of their adult lives. Because that's what you do when you find yourself working for a genius, a man who has the mysterious and inexplicable power to bring out the best in you. Mysterious. Inexplicable. I've done my best to explain Duke Ellington's genius in my book, but I know that at bottom, all you can really do is bow to its irresistibly compelling power. A prime example of the mystery that is Ellington is his most famous composition, Mood Indigo, written in 1930. It's a three-in-the-morning nocturne, and at first glance, there doesn't seem to be all that much to it. Mood Indigo opens with a three-part chorale intoned by muted trumpet, muted trombone, and a low-register clarinet, the exact same combination that Andre Previn had in mind when he said, Duke merely lifts a finger, three horns make a sound, and I don't know what it is. After that, you hear a pair of clarinet and trumpet solos, followed by a rippling little piano solo by Ellington himself. And then the band circles back to that introduction, and that's that. Like the poet said, that's all you know and all you need to know. As I say, there's not all that much to mood indigo, just a handful of perfectly chosen notes. But they add up to a musical statement that is as unforgettable as a proverb. It's an imperishable classic, one of a handful of songs that come to mind whenever Ellington's name is mentioned anywhere in the world. And that's why I wrote Duke, to try to bring you closer to the mystery how such music was brought into the world. Yes, it's true. Duke Ellington was a seductively charismatic, impenetrably enigmatic character with a tabloid-friendly love life. But it is his music, not his personality, for which he continues to be known today. He was to jazz what Aaron Copland was to classical music, the great American composer. 
and his three-minute masterpieces will be remembered for as long as jazz itself is remembered. And now, now this is the good part. The floor is yours. I would be more than happy to answer any questions that you might have about Duke Ellington or my book or, well, anything else. Yes, sir. How do you want to do this? You got a microphone? We do. Okay. Because this is uh, being podcast for our website, so we so want to hear the questions. We want to hear the questions as well as we hear the answers. Uh, did Duke give himself that name, and did it, did he want to be like a royal person with a title, in a sense, I metaphorically? No, he didn't give himself the name. Okay, it came. In childhood, probably in high school, because his fellow students, uh, they noticed how elegantly he dressed and how elegantly they carried, he carried himself. And back then, they would have known the Duke of Wellington. Oh, okay. And uh, that's, how, that's how the name came. And like all perfect nicknames, it stuck. Now, I, I don't think he thought of himself as royalty, but he knew what he was. He, well, he knew was that he was special. a great art. He knew it was something very special. Yeah. So he wasn't sorry to have that name. Let's put it that way. Well, one more other thing. His musical studies, any, the formal studies, how far? Have he studied with anybody? Next to nothing. He had three or four piano lessons with a woman in Washington whose name, believe it or not, we've checked the census records and it's true, was Mrs. Clink Scales. and he uh, had he said maybe half a dozen lessons in traditional classical harmony and that was really all he needed he did not listen to any classical music until he was well into adulthood and he didn't hear any jazz until he was a teenager in high school because remember when he was born 1901 Washington, D.C. at that time was not a center of jazz activity. Sidney Bechet came to town, I think, the year before he left. James P. Johnson was there. But basically, Ellington made himself out of himself. That, that was how it happened, which makes it even more mysterious. Thank you. you made reference, reference to the fact that uh, Duke hated to finish projects. He was not good at that. Is there any estimate that you have discovered on how many uh, of his great writings never made it to paper at all? Well, eventually everything got written down. But, But a lot of it, as I said, was written down after the fact. And in the early years, uh, before he really became fluent at writing music down, he would actually teach the pieces to the band by rote. He'd be sitting at the piano and he'd play the parts and the musicians would play them and memorize them. He said it really wasn't until he went into the Cotton Club in New York in 1927 when they had to play a lot of new music every week that he was forced to write things down consistently because there was just too much music to do without. And to the end of his life, 
when whatever he wrote down was subject to being changed on the spot in the studio on the bandstand by his whim uh, that was just the way he liked to work what he what he loved to do would he would come into a recording studio with six or seven separate chunks of music and the band would run them down and he'd say well okay we'll do this one first and then we're going to do the last one second, and then we'll go to number four and play six bars of number five. This is something I talk about in detail in the book. Uh, and he, he, I think he thought of music as a kind of mosaic, as something where you just could move the pieces around at will. Uh, he wasn't the kind of composer who sits down in the studio and thinks it all out and puts it on paper and brings it into the rehearsal studio and then they play it down. Uh, he just didn't work that way. That w- wasn't the way his imagination worked. We have folks over on the other. Oh, okay, and then folks over on the other side. Let's not forget the other side. I just yes, want sir. to briefly compliment you. I've heard a fair amount of authors, but you're a great speaker as well, which really adds nice to making to say. you interested Thank you. in the book. Thank you very much. I'll second that. that. I've heard a lot of authors too. So, <laughs> um, and you, you do a fabulous job of of tantalizing us and making us want to buy the book. Well, that's the plan. <laughs> I've done a lot of radio. I think that that makes a big difference. Um. I'm a um, big Frank Sinatra fan. I yes. have a lot of his music, a lot of his records, and also a good actor also. Um, he uh, was an unprejudiced guy, as you know. And yes. he worked with uh, Basie. He was a big friend of Basie and, and, uh, and um, Louis Armstrong. And he did a, a couple albums, or one at least, with one. Duke Ellington. And I was wondering, did, did Duke Ellington ever have any opinions about Sinatra as a person or a singer? Yes, he, th- he thought he was the guy, the singer. And uh, when, he, when Sinatra started his own record label, Reprise, he brought in Ellington to be his A&R man for jazz, not just to record for the label, but to be a talent scout for it. But the recording of that one album they made together, uh, again, a story that's told in the book, didn't go quite the way Sinatra expected because Ellington had a habit of not wanting to rehearse charts for an album. And he swore to Sinatra that he'd take the charts out on the road. They were written by Billy May. And that he'd play them at, at dances and nightclub gigs and he'd play the voice part on the piano and they'd come into the studio and it'd all be just as slick as could be. Nope. They walked into the studio, uh, they ran down the first chart and, and May said they had obviously never even looked at them from the time he'd sent them out. Uh, that was a pretty classic Ellington trick. He pulled the same stunt on Ella Fitzgerald when they made their big uh, uh, album together for Verb. He had a perverse streak. Ellington really did. I mean, he liked to pull the chain. And he did not like to do what people expected him to do, or most particularly people told him to do. Uh, you've spoken uh, quite extensively about him as an arranger, conductor, uh, composer, but also what were your opinions of him? And he did do small group recording. What was he as a piano player? He recorded with Max Roach and Charles I'm, Mingus. He I'm also so glad did a you're asking small that. group uh, session with Louis Armstrong and right. uh, Coleman Hawkins, and they all lived, he and Hawkins and, and uh Basically, all lived in the same building as Mac. Talk a little bit about sure. that and how he was not also with those that worked for him, but those who were his right. contemporaries, like a Basie, like a Coleman Hawkins. Well, Ellington started out as, in the 20s as an okay pianist, not 
a fabulous pianist. He never put himself in the same category as James P. Johnson or Fats Waller, or the, or the players that he learned from. But as he grew older, he grew deeper and richer as a pianist. He didn't make his first solo album until, I think, 1951 or 52. It's an album called Piano Reflections on Capitol. And it, it was like some magic had happened over those years. And suddenly he emerges as this tremendously persuasive and exciting pianist who can feature himself. And it was after that, I mean, he made a lot of small group 78s in the 30s and 40s, but he doesn't feature the piano extensively on them. Starting in the 50s, he starts making these combo albums with the the great artists that you mentioned. And um, he was... He was always the one to listen to on those records. You mentioned working with his working with Max Roach and Charles Mingus. That was a hard day uh, because those two weren't speaking. And the three of them came into the, the studio for an album that is called Money Jungle. And, uh, well, Ellington was the one who kept the peace, as he often did in his own band. And the results were gorgeous. They were fabulous. But... Uh, I think I would have, I might have liked to have been a fly on the wall of the studio while that record got made. Uh, but yes, by, by the 50s, he was one of the great ones on piano. And uh, in the later years of the band, when the great soloists had passed on or moved on and he was working with younger players, he emerged as the band's greatest soloist, the one that you always listened to in the, in the late 60s, no matter, what else, no matter what else was happening on the stand. Uh, we've got a couple in the middle of the house. Uh, you mentioned how many secrets he had, and I'm wondering if you encountered much reluctance on the part of people to who you interviewed to tell you the secrets, or if most of the secrets were found out from documentary evidence. You know, I, it, most everybody who knew Ellington well is dead. I, I wasn't... I worked with a lot of oral histories. I did talk to some people. Everybody who knew Ellington wanted to tell what they could, but they all said the same thing. And that was, you read this over and over again. They said, I knew him, but I never really knew him. And uh, that says a lot, because the people who knew Louis Armstrong also all said the same thing. They were eager to tell stories about him, and they all said that they loved him. This is not something that most people who knew Ellington... It's a word that doesn't often come up in conversation. They admired him. They were fascinated by him. They don't tend to say in that unforced way that the people who knew Armstrong said to me, I loved him. Obviously, some of them did. I think they were puzzled by him. Uh, And that's what he wanted. I mean, this is a man who had secrets to keep. I mean, remember, he is a great public figure, he's a great symbol of the race, and he's somebody who's leading exactly the private life that he wants to lead. Uh, he, after the razor attack, which took place in about 1927, he left his wife, he left all the clothes behind that night and disappeared. But they were never divorced. They remained married until her death in the 60s. Uh, A close friend of his uh, told me, I think that was because he always wanted to be able to say that he had the wife in case one of the girlfriends got sticky. But uh, (laughs) true, true or not, this is a man who had a whole lot of women. And 
that is something that could have caused for a, a black man, a great celebrity and public figure in the 40s and the 50s, tremendous scandal had he not been able to keep it quiet. And he did. He, uh, he, paid, off, he paid off some people to keep it quiet. His son Mercer tells us that. Uh, advertisements were taken in certain publications that uh, uh, might not have been taken uh, otherwise. But, uh, but I think it wasn't just all about sex. I mean, I thought a lot about this. You know, Ellington is a man, he lives his life in public, and he, he, he almost composes in public. He composes on the road. Like Louis Armstrong, he spent 300 nights a year or more on the road. Most of his music was written in hotel rooms, backstage in nightclubs, on the train back in the 30s and 40s. He loved to, you know, the Ellington band took private Pullman cars because that was the best way for for a black band to travel down south in the 30s. There weren't any hotels, so they had their own Pullman cars. Uh, Ellington was great about that. Whenever somebody from the south uh, would come up and say, well, I've never seen anything like this, and you know what they were thinking. And he would say, well, that's the way the president travels. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was a very proud man, and he had much to be proud about. But, but what I'm getting at is that a composer, a, a creative artist, is doing something secret, doing something private. And Ellington didn't get to do it um, tucked away from the world. He was doing it on a Pullman car. And I think maybe that has a lot to do with this this desire on his part to keep the secrets because the ultimate secret to keep is not who you're sleeping with it's what the magic is how you make this music come from nowhere and sometimes you want to guard that because you're afraid maybe that it'll go away so i think that has something to do with it as well was that openness of character between armstrong and ellington what brought you to Armstrong as a subject for biography first, and in what ways did writing that biography prepare you for or influence you in the writing of Duke? Nobody has ever asked me that question. Uh, I have obviously been asked how I got interested in Louis Armstrong, and the answer is I was a little boy. I won't tell you how little, but it was in 1965, so you can uh, do the math on that one too. And I was playing in the backyard, and my mother, it was one Sunday night, and I was playing in the backyard, and my mother said, come in here. So I came inside, being a dutiful little boy, and she said, I want you to see this man on the television because he won't be around forever. And it was Louis Armstrong playing Hello, Dolly! on The Ed Sullivan Show. And that was, I think that must have been the beginning of my interest, not just in Armstrong, but in jazz, and ultimately in becoming uh, a jazz musician. So I, I obviously didn't think at the age of eight that uh, um, I was going to write an Armstrong biography when I grew up. But I had that in my mind. And in fact, that story is in the epilogue to my Armstrong book, which my mother did live to read, and she liked that. Um, the summer before, the summer that the Armstrong book came out, before it was published, before I went on uh, a book tour, I was, my wife and I were, I was covering theater up in New England, and we were, we were in, I think, New Hampshire, driving down the road, listening to Duke Ellington. And it just hit me like a pile driver. I thought, Ellington, of course, that's my next book. Why don't I write about Duke Ellington? 
And because I had written an Armstrong biography, and, and that was my third biography, Ellington is my fourth, I understood what the problems are. I understood you know, what you have to find out, where you have to go, where are the papers, which in Ellington's case are in the Smithsonian Institution. And I, I sort of knew the checklist of how to write a biography. So as soon as I got back to New York, I started running down that checklist, and I realized very quickly, yes, Ellington makes sense as a project, and it will be interesting to write about him because he is so different from Louis Armstrong. Because I, I, I wouldn't have thought to write two jazz books in a row. I don't like to be typecast. But you really can't come up with two people who were more dissimilar than Armstrong and Ellington. And while they knew each other and respected each other, I'm, I'm not sure I would say that they liked each other. Uh, Armstrong thought that Ellington was, you might say, a hi-hatter. And Ellington thought that Armstrong was an Uncle Tom. There is a, a, a tape where he and Strayhorn are talking about Armstrong. He doesn't use those words. But it's clear that what he's getting at is that Armstrong is too quick to please. And I think what you see at work there is a class difference. It's the difference between a man who was born in the roughest part of New Orleans, whose mother was a prostitute, and a man who was born into a middle-class family in Washington, D.C. So they respected each other's talent. They loved each other's talent. But they, other than making that album, they only appeared in public once on the Ed Sullivan Show to promote the album. So um, I felt that going from one to the other would be an interesting transition, and that is what it turned out to be. Uh, you've got the microphone, right? Okay. I believe you mentioned that uh, it was in the 60s that he died. May I ask how old he was when he died? Uh, he, it was 1971, actually, was oh, when he died. Okay. And, and what age was he? He was just past, well, he was born in 1899. Mm-hmm. I, I I can't remember so the exact 71. dates, but that tells okay. you where it was. Okay. Now, what I'm uh, curious about is uh, you said he, he didn't do his first solo album until in the, in the 50s. Early 50s, yes. So it was about 20 years before he died. Right. Now, what I'm curious about is at what time in his early life, what turned him on to music? How did it come about that he says, I want to be a musician. That's a great story and he told that. We know exactly the answer to your question because he wasn't interested in music. There was a piano. He tried a few piano lessons from Mrs. Clink Scales and he didn't like it. He just didn't care for it. Uh, What he wanted to be was a commercial artist and he had actual talent, real talent in that area. So much so that he had a scholarship to, to one of the New York art schools, Cooper Hewitt, and he could have followed that path. But one summer... He, he was feeling big for his britches and decided that he'd go to Atlantic City and, and seek his fortune. What he ended up doing was spending the summer washing dishes. But he was doing it in a club where there was a, a ragtime pianist named Harvey Brooks. Not a famous pianist, but he did make some records, so we know what he sounded like. He was a really good pianist. Ellington heard this man play several times. And he said he had never before heard a musician 
whose personality was in the music because as I told you he'd never heard an important jazz musician before then and he actually went to Brooks and said what are you doing show me your secrets and so he, he went back he came back to Washington with a pocket full of money from washing the dishes uh, and a couple of new suits and he opened up the family piano and started to teach himself how to play and within a couple of months he'd written his first composition and he never looked back after that um, but that's what happened. It was that he heard somebody as a teenager, and it just struck him that this was a different kind of music, a music that made sense to him that he thought he could do. So that's, that is the actual answer to your question. Who's, who's got the microphone? And we have somebody down front here too, right? Okay, you're next. Uh, how did it come about that you took your biography of Satchmo and turned it into a play and thus became a playwright. Well, somebody suggested it because I, I wasn't one of those, you know, there's this idea that drama critics all sit around saying, oh God, if I can only write a play. But I never thought about writing a play. I, I didn't have any a special urge to. Uh, in the summer of 2009, I wrote an opera libretto with a colleague of mine which was commissioned by the Santa Fe Opera, and we've written, he and I have written two more operas since then. But again, I didn't think of this as a step toward becoming a playwright. I just thought, oh, well, this is interesting. My buddy wants to write an opera. You know, uh, we, we didn't know it was going to become a sideline. Um, but Pops came out in the fall of 2009, and I, I remember this very clearly because I still have the email. On Christmas Eve of 2009... I got an email at my blog from a man whose name I did not recognize who said, I read your book. Uh, I think it's a very good book. I didn't know Armstrong, but I did know Joe Glazer, his manager, and I thought you really captured him. Have you thought of writing a play based on your book or getting someone to write it? And I had not. I didn't recognize the name, but he... I don't mean to make him sound vain, but he sort of wrote in a way that indicated that I ought to know who he was. So I, so I Googled him. I should have. He was one of the producers of Jelly's Last Jam. Uh, and I thought to myself, well, jeepers. I mean, if a guy like this thinks that there's a play in this book, maybe I should think about that too. So a few days later, I went down to Florida. I was doing a residency at a college in Winter Park called Rollins College, and I had a little more time on my hands than I usually do. And I had been thinking all along about, uh, is there a play here? And now that I have since written several scripts, you know, this play and others and other opera libretti, I now know that when I have an idea for a show, what comes to me is a picture, a stage picture. And the picture that came to me is the next to last picture in the book Pops. It is a photograph taken in Las Vegas in 1970, um, six months before Louis Armstrong died. He's sitting in a chair in his dressing room. He's got his tux on, but the jacket's hung up. He's holding his trumpet in his lap. He's thinking. He's just looking down at it, and he looks old, and he looks tired. And, you know, I'd seen this picture a hundred times. Obviously, I put it in the book, but I saw it in a new way, and I thought, suddenly, it came to me like a bolt. That's my play. That's where the play starts. He's backstage at the Waldorf Astoria. That was his very last gig in New York three months before he died. And he's thinking about his life and trying to decide how he feels now that he's come to the end of the road. And 
a few days later, I sat down and started writing. And four days after that, I had the rough draft of the play. It's not so uncommon. I mean, plays get written fast. They're not as long as you think. A play is, you know, my play is maybe a tenth the length of the Armstrong book. Uh, but it did come out just in a in a whiz, and well, here we are, here we are. But that's how it that's how it happened. That's how it happened. Well, when I think of jazz and the twenties, very different from the thirties and the forties. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about the progression of Ellington's music and his influence on the change in jazz, and who? Um, which musicians today would look back and say, this has been my influence? Well, that's an interesting question. Ellington, everybody thinks that Ellington is the greatest jazz composer of the 20th century. And everybody does his songs. But he didn't really influence anybody in the sense that people tried to write music like his because it was so radically different from what everybody else was doing, and also they couldn't figure out how to do it, that there were only two or three jazz composers who really said, I'm going to try to write like this. I will be influenced by this. They were more influenced by, by Ellington's model, if you see what I mean, that Ellington thought of himself not just as a guy who leads a band, but as a serious composer, a serious artist. And Irving Mills, his manager, presented himself, presented him that way. Uh, This was a very conscious strategy on Mills' part, was to promote Ellington not as the band leader, but as the composer who leads a band. And I think that, as much as anything, that is Ellington's real influence on jazz. It's an influence of aspiration, of saying... This music can be more than just something that we play so that people can do the Charleston. This music can say things, deeper, richer, more complex things, than anybody has ever tried to say in it before. Uh, Aside from the actual value of his music, which is, you know, hundreds and hundreds of masterpieces, that's his significance. It's a historic significance that he, he showed a generation and a generation after that of jazz musicians what to shoot for, what jazz could do. He changed their sense of expectations and their sense of self. And and that is as, as much... Well, I mean, the music itself is the great thing about him. But after that, I think maybe that's the next great thing about him, was this this understanding that jazz is serious artistic business. He knew that and he wasn't embarrassed to say it. Uh, who's got the microphone? How about over here? Okay. Thank you. What was the relationship like between Ellington and his son, and did his son have any talent? Boy, that's a good one. Um, it was an extremely complicated and difficult relationship. Um, and that's always the case when a great man has a child who goes into his line of work. Mercer had some talent. He had some real talent, but he didn't have that kind of talent. Um, And he tried to get out of his father's shadow for a long time. Um, He briefly wrote music for the band in 1940. Uh, 
some good pieces, but we suspect that Duke had as much to do with them as Mercer did. Uh, and then he tried to establish his own career as a band leader, as a disc jockey, you know, different kinds of things. And he was getting somewhere with it. But then Ellington, who was a, a jealous man in a lot of different ways, um, he said, Mercer, you've got to come back and help me. I, I need you. I need you to be my road manager. And Mercer, he said, he says somewhere, I have it in the book, he, he, he gave in to the inevitable. And he spent the rest of his own life from the 60s on uh, taking care of his father. After Duke died, Mercer wrote a very good, very revealing book, a memoir called Duke Ellington in Person. And it's extremely honest about their relationship and his view of it. He says things, really striking things. Uh, the, The one that strikes me the most is he's talking about Ellington's love life. And he says, I think at bottom he hated women. And that thought had never occurred to me until I read this in Mercer's book. And then I thought, well, yes, sometimes that's what Don Juans are like. Maybe he was like that. Like anybody who was in Mercer's position, you can't take the book at face value. It's the book of a man who had his own conflicts and anger. But you can't not take it seriously. So it was, it was a tough relationship. It was a tough one. And... <laughs> I think it left its scars on Mercer, as these relationships always do. Uh, where? I'll, I'll leave that to you. We've got people all the way over on the other side, right. so let's not forget them. Sure. Who's up? Oh, Jack Lapidus. All the way in the front. We want to try to, to try to give equal time to all sides of the room. Can't let you get away from Baltimore without this question. With Armstrong and Ellington, uh, how come the Mencken book? I have to give uh, please mention your Mencken book. Uh, why was that done? And I know you did ten years on that. Uh, curious uh, how that came about. It was suggested to me by my then publisher. Uh, I had not, at that point years and years and years ago. I never thought of writing a biography. And this was right when the Mencken diaries were published, when the sealed papers were opened and the diaries came out. And I had written an essay for a magazine, The New Criterion, about the diaries. And my editor, Elaine Pfefferblit at Poseidon Books, said, I read your piece. Have you thought about writing a biography? At this point, I'm in the middle of working on two books for her. And I said, go away, go away. And my agent said, you don't say that to an editor. You, you, know, you say, okay, I'll think about it. And I thought about it. And it took me a long weekend to realize this was the right challenge for me at the right moment. I had always been fascinated by Mank, and I started my junior high school social studies teacher introduced me to him, and I'd read him ever since then. And like everybody else who knew about Mankin, I was fascinated by the sealed papers and what they might tell us about him. And beyond that, I just thought that I, I'd never written a book that big or that ambitious. And I thought, the way to, I didn't know this, but I do now, the way to learn how to write a biography is to write one. And the reason why the Mencken book took 10 years and the other ones have taken five was because when I started, I didn't know what I was doing. And by the time I finished the Mencken book, I knew how to write a biography. So when I go on to write another one, I know how to avoid the mistakes and the waste motion, and I was just better at it. Um, But like so many things in life, it it wasn't my idea. What I give myself credit for is realizing that it was a good idea and that it was the right idea for me. Uh, And it was. I mean, as, as you know, the book was very well received, and 
well, thank you. And, and it also made me realize I like writing biographies. Uh, I'm not a novelist, and a biography is, is a kind of a novel. I mean, it's, it's a story that you tell about a person's life. So it's kind of a natural development for me to have changed, turned one of my biographies, uh, the Armstrong book, into a real piece of storytelling, uh, uh, Satchmo at the Waldorf, whose title page says, This is a work of fiction freely based on fact. Um, so I don't know what's going to come next. I do want to write at least one more biography, but I've got the playwriting bug too. And we did a reading in November of a new play that I've written about a very interesting family experience. My father in 1942 in our, my hometown, which is in Southeast Missouri, witnessed the last lynching to take place outside the deep South. This happened, as I say, in my hometown. He saw the first part of it because he lived in a second-floor walk up across the street from the jail. And one Sunday morning, there was noise in the street that woke him up, and he looked out, opened the windows, and there was a crowd in front of the jail, and they were pulling somebody out. And um, uh, that is the seed that I think may be growing into... Well, it has grown because I've written the first draft of the script. It's a play called Breaking and Entering. So we'll see if something comes of that. But, uh, you know, I like to do a lot of things. I I love my job. I I think I have the best job in the world as the Wall Street Journal's drama critic. But I love writing biographies. Now I know that I love writing plays. And I've written three operas, so I must like that too. And uh, we'll just see what happens. We'll just see what happens. All the way in the back... Where's the mystery microphone? Okay, and we've got all right. We've got two people in the back row too. So this gentleman first. Yeah. Don't give up that microphone. I read your uh, your biography of Mencken, and I wanted to uh, bring it back to him for a moment. Um, He was also a piano player. Yes. And I'm an adequate one. Trying to (laughs) not in the same league, but I wanted to. I couldn't remember whether in Mencken's publishing of the uh, American Mercury and I guess before that the Smart Set, whether he had much to say about Ellington. Did their eras overlap enough for him to have said anything about... Well, you're asking the right guy because I know the exact answer to that. He never said anything about Ellington. He didn't like jazz, but he published pieces about jazz in the Mercury because he knew it was something important in the 20s. But in his own life, he had no interest in jazz or any any kind of popular music of that sort. His interests were strictly limited to classical music and mostly German classical music. If he ever mentioned Ellington by name, and of course Mencken wrote millions of words, so there there may be a piece down in the basement somewhere that I don't know about, but if he ever mentioned Ellington by name anywhere, I have never heard of it. Did Ellington have any regard for people like Mencken who brought attention to the Harlem Renaissance? Ellington didn't read for pleasure. Um, he liked you to think that he did. And Billy Strayhorn read a lot for pleasure, they were, but they were very different in that way. Uh, the subject of the Harlem Renaissance, which I talk about at some length in, in Duke, is relevant and very interesting because the Harlem Renaissance was a literary movement, and the blacks behind it, for the most part, They weren't interested in jazz either. What they wanted was a black classical composer. 
That's what they were looking for. Cab Calloway talks about this in his autobiography. Very interesting. He says, they were over here, and we were over there, and we knew about them, and they knew about us, but they didn't seem to have any great interest in us. So Ellington is obviously in Harlem at the time of the Harlem Renaissance, so there's a sense in which he's part of it. But he isn't part of the actual movement the literary movement that is known as the Harlem Renaissance, and nor was any other jazz musician. So that's that's the answer to your question. It surprised me too when I when I explored it. It was it was quite striking when I found that passage in Callaway's memoirs that really that turned the lights on for me. I really felt that I understood better. Um, this is kind of a double one, double question. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you consider the three? Or five best compositions by Ellen Fink, the best songs. I, I like um, mm-hmm. one called uh, uh, Don't Get Around Much Anymore. That's one of my favorites. I but think I, everybody likes that one. Yeah, I'll do that. But I, and also, I'm a big Count Basie fan. Do you, does, did he consider Count Basie uh, a great uh, arranger? I know he's a great arranger. And did he do a lot of songs also? Oh, I'll, I'll take the second one first. Oh, they really admired each other. Because they also knew that they were, so to speak, in different businesses that uh, Count was the guy uh, who, who played the swing, who played the blues. Ellington was the composer. And, you know, they did make an album together. Uh, together again, The Count Meets the Duke. I forget the title of it. But uh, th- they knew that they were, in a sense, not in direct competition. Basie always said that Ellington was the greater of the two. Remember that I spent a lot of time playing jazz in Kansas City. And in my secret heart of hearts, if I had to play in one of those two bands, it would have been Counts, because I love that kind of swing. But uh, I, I know that Ellington was the greater one, too. But they did have great respect. And, and insofar as two guys who are both on the road 300 nights a year can have a friendship as well. And... My all-time favorite Duke Ellington composition is a piece he recorded in 1940 called Coco. It's a minor key blues. I think it's his, his the, the three minutes that sum him up best. Uh, I get asked this when I'm doing radio shows. They say, what do you want us to play? I always say Coco. I always say the original uh, recording of, of Mood Indigo from 1930. And then that third one's a wild card because when somebody writes all that music, uh, uh, it's it's whatever I especially liked that day, whatever excited me the most. But uh, uh, who was the gentleman who asked me about Ellington's piano playing? Uh, I, I, there's a record, a small group record that Hodges made in, uh, uh, I think, 1940, called Things Ain't What They Used to Be, mm-hmm. which Mercer claimed to have written. He actually is supposed to have won the rights to the tune from Johnny Hodges in a poker game. But uh, Ellington plays Ellington plays piano on that, and he doesn't play much piano. It almost sounds like Count Basie, just just a few notes here and there. And uh, Hodges is playing one of those dirty blues solos, and I, that record is a very special favorite of mine. Things ain't what they used to be, and there the band had a set of lyrics that they sang to it, and I absolutely cannot repeat them in this room. <laughs> but they were about a preferred sex act. I'll just leave it at that. I, think I also have the yeah. next question in, in a repeat. Um, you, you've again spoken about many of his three-minute masterpieces, but he also did longer compositions like the Sacred Concerts and the uh, Afro-Eurasian Eclipse. Talk mm-hmm. a little bit about the, the more expansive compositions uh, that he 
that he did. That's and actually, he and Basie lived in the same building, 555 right. Edgecombe Avenue. For yeah. Now, that, that's a big subject, one that I deal with at great length in the book, and it's a complicated one. Ellington aspired to writing large-scale compositions, but I think at heart he was a short hitter. And what he calls large-scale pieces basically are put together out of shorter pieces. Only maybe a half dozen times in his life did he actually write single sustained movements longer than, say, 10 or 12 minutes in, in, in length. Um, the Sacred Service, it's Services, there are three of them. It's interesting you mentioned that because when I was down in Florida uh, last month, I actually took part in a, a performance of excerpts from all three of the Sacred Services by the... Uh, Bach Festival Choir of Winter Park, and um, they're grab bags. Uh, you don't, I don't think you want to do any one of them all the way through. We chose the best movements from the three of them. Uh, the best parts of them are quite remarkable, but I think in the long run, Ellington is going to be remembered for the smaller scale compositions as a miniaturist and a great miniaturist. There's nothing wrong with being a miniaturist. Chopin was a miniaturist. Flannery O'Connor was a miniaturist. You know, I mean, sh- bigger is not better. Longer is not better. But he did have that aspiration, and I think maybe that tied into that sense that it was something he ought to do. I think that might have had as much to do with it as anything. Uh, are you all watching the clock? I'm not, so I... I'm yeah. having fun. I'm perfectly happy to answer questions. Well, I think that we could sit here all evening and listen to you talk and answer questions. I mean, it's truly fascinating. Um, but we do have books to sell. That's right. And books. We'd like to, to sell some books. We would like to sell some books, and we would like for you to sign them. So I think that we will. Um, I think we'll cut it off here, and let's give Terry a big round of applause. And let's give. These two interpreters, their own round of applause. Thank you both.